Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Anthony Pearson. Dr. Pearson is a non-invasive clinical cardiologist who's board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, echocardiography, and nuclear cardiology. In addition to his clinical work, he's spent time in academic cardiology, done research and teaching, and published more than 100 papers in major cardiology journals. All of his experiences taught Dr. Pearson to cultivate a healthy skepticism for medical and scientific information that has potential bias. He started his blog, The Skeptical Cardiologist, to examine what we truly know about diet and cardiovascular disease versus what we have been told. In the episode, he shares why fish oil supplements are a waste of money, his thoughts on low-carb and vegan diets for heart and overall health, why it's beneficial to consume the cholesterol-containing yolks of eggs, and more. But before we hear from Dr. Pearson, I want to take a moment to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend my entire paycheck on groceries. And to be honest, I did used to spend a lot of money on food. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive doesn't have any brick and mortar locations, I can conveniently order fridge, freezer, and pantry staples in just a few quick clicks on their website or app. Then Thrive delivers everything from protein bars to spices to pasta right to my door. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. One more thing, if you've been on a weight loss roller coaster for years, trying everything from cutting out carbs and sugar to counting points, macros, and calories, to buying expensive gym equipment, to having stronger willpower and self-control, but nothing has worked, I have some great news for you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work with clients one-on-one and also through my monthly membership to help you lose weight for the last time without dieting. When you work with me, you'll finally learn how to lose those pesky pounds for good, feel completely in control around all types of food, even carbs, and develop effortless habits that work for your unique lifestyle. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or connect with me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I would love to chat with you. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Pearson. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. 
If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Pearson. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was mentioning that I discovered you through your blog, which we're going to definitely talk about, but I just couldn't get enough of your blog and bookmarked it actually on my browser and have referenced it multiple times. So it's just really an honor to have you here today and to be able to talk with you one-on-one. Well, thanks, Brooke. Uh, I'm I appreciate the compliments about the blog and I look forward to discussing things with you. Yeah, for sure. I'd love if you could share just in your own words, what led you to become a doctor in the first place and then to later start your blog that we've mentioned, the skeptical cardiologist. Sure. I, um, uh, was kind of a sickly child. I had a lot of asthma, eczema, um, and uh, books were my refuge. So I, I kind of gravitated towards reading and then towards science. And ultimately, I decided that I wanted to discover a cure for aging. This is sometime in my high school years. And I, so when I originally went to undergraduate school, I, was, I wanted to become a, a researcher. And when I went to medical school, I was uh, going to do a combined MD-PhD program with a PhD in immunology at St. Louis University. But uh, ultimately, uh, I was kind of seduced by the clinical aspects of medicine and interacting with patients. And uh, so I just became a, uh, I just got my MD degree and went through internal medicine and cardiology training and practiced as a cardiologist. Uh, first, I was on the faculty of St. Louis University. Then I ran an echo lab at Ohio State University for 10 years. And then I was in a busy private practice, multi-hospital group in Louisville, Kentucky. And then I came back to uh, St. Louis to work in a private hospital in the county. and. Uh, after I came back here, I met my now wife and she was eating um, a croissant one day and put butter on it. And uh, this horrified me. This was probably eight years ago. And at that time, I had kind of bought into the standard cardiology dogma that we uh, should all be eating low fat. We should be avoiding saturated fat at all costs, that butter was bad for you dairy fat was bad for you and that what she was doing was uh, increasing her risk of heart attack and stroke. And um, she challenged me to prove that that was the case. And when I started looking at the original papers and science in the area, specifically of dairy fat, I found that there really was nothing that suggested dairy fat increased your risk of cardiovascular disease 
There was nothing that suggested it increased your risk of obesity or diabetes, that in fact, there was evidence that it lowered your blood pressure, lowered your risk of metabolic disease. So um, that kind of triggered me to become the skeptical cardiologist and start writing information, primarily for my patients about diet and other things in cardiology. Um, and um, that led to me to enter other areas and I've probably written on uh, all kinds of things over the years. Wow. What, what specifically led you to cardiology? I'm just curious. Well, uh, in medicine, uh, we uh, do a lot of invasive procedures when you're in the training. You're sticking things into people's neck veins. You're sticking things into their arteries, uh, catheters, and things like that. And that aspect of uh, medicine really excited me. I thought that was really the cool area. And cardiology, of course, we do a lot of that uh, with catheterization. We do a lot of exciting things, treat acute heart attacks. So um, I think I was kind of uh, attracted by the excitement of the field at the time. Uh, ironically, um, I did not go into invasive cardiology. I, I went into non-invasive cardiology, became an expert on echocardiography. And um, predominantly uh, now I kind of try to steer people away from invasive and interventional procedures, if at all possible, rather right. than uh, performing procedures on people. Do you find that's often possible through diet and lifestyle modifications or do people yeah. like, yeah. is there a percentage of people who are able to kind of treat or reverse? I don't know what word you would use heart conditions without invasive procedures. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a percentage, but I think that for most people, uh, if they identify uh, a risk early on for heart attack and stroke, um, if you can identify it early on, and I, I talk on my blog about several methods for doing that, and you can institute diet and lifestyle changes that lower uh, your weight, lower your risk of high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes. And um, beyond that, uh, you, you may have inherited a condition that doesn't allow diet and lifestyle to prevent it. So we have medications that do a fantastic job of helping you reduce your risk. Even if you're following perfect diet and lifestyle, sometimes that's needed. But yeah, so my, I see my job as, uh, as helping people to avoid all of these procedures, all these great procedures that we do in cardiology. I want my right, patients to not have to them. have stents and not to have bypass yeah. surgery. And I definitely don't want them to drop dead. Uh, <laughs> so I spend a lot of time identifying their problem, their, their risk and uh, writing about that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great to have all those technologies. Like you said, if there's some genetic issue or somebody has to resort to those, but I do love your approach of kind of tackling what you can through diet and lifestyle choices initially to see if that can kind of mitigate or help things. 
Um, and so I would love, I know you mentioned butter on the croissant and saturated fat. So if somebody is listening and has been told maybe even by their cardiologist, cause I think not every doctor kind of dives into nutrition as much. Um, so what is the deal with saturated fat and do we, you said not, we don't need to necessarily avoid it, but is there a certain amount we should be eating or certain types we should be avoiding? Just, I guess, saturated fat. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, it's a complicated area. Um, and the, the things that I can say for sure are that uh, all, di- all saturated fat is not the same. I th- I think the American Heart Association, the various dietary organizations like to simplify the message um, Mm. for people. Um, And originally the message was all fat is bad. Um, Mm. But I think very clearly in the last 10 years, at least, most people have figured out that it's not all fat and have they have focused on saturated fat as the bad fat and polyunsaturated fat and monounsaturated fat as the good fats. But all of these fatty acid families are very complicated. They're not, they have, you have long chain, you have short chain, you have medium chain fatty acids, and they all have differing effects on cholesterol profile and therefore have differing effects on the development of atherosclerosis, which is the fatty plaque buildup that leads to heart attack and stroke. So in the case of dairy fats, um, which are kind of unique, uh, we see that certain fats in dairy much more common than we do in uh, animal meat. The evidence uh, is almost non-existent that it raises bad cholesterol uh, more than good cholesterol, or that it increases cardiovascular risk. So for, especially if we look at things like yogurt um, and cheese, uh, there is nothing to suggest that you should be consuming low-fat or non-fat yogurt or non-fat milk or low-fat or non-fat cheese over selectively over full-fat. In fact, in the, the general trend, I think, in, all, in almost all diets now is to try to, evolve, uh, try to avoid processed food. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take the fat out of yogurt, you are doing a lot of processing. And generally what happens to make it more palatable is sugar is added in some form. Uh, and in my opinion, sugar is the major toxin in our diet uh, now is as it is manifested in ultra processed foods that we tend to eat. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so, so saturated fats are not a monolithic family. And, and I think the dairy fat uh, evidence shows us that, mm-hmm. um, but it's still being presented to uh, consumers that they should avoid all saturated fat. Um, yeah, and some other fats even, that are also yeah. kind of in a different category, coconut oil, which mm-hmm. is a predominantly high saturated fat food, um, doesn't have the same effects on LDL and HDL on good and bad cholesterol. Um, and the evidence suggesting that that is bad for you is also very weak. Mm. I think, Interesting. you know, probably we can ag- agree that if you're eating a lot of animal meat, 
with a lot of saturated fat in your diet, you would benefit from replacing at least some of that, at least a moderate amount of that with polyunsaturated fat consumption. But um, that doesn't necessarily apply across the board. And, and um, you can have uh, a healthy diet that includes a significant amount of saturated fats. Yeah, when you were listing off all of the dairy products, I was thinking even beyond the type of dairy that we should be eating, people will now be saying you should avoid animal products or dairy altogether and drink these nut milks or oat milks or any type of alternative milk. Um, and then you mentioned meat as well. So people will say for your heart, you should stop eating all meat and do entirely an entirely plant-based diet as people call it. So I'd love to hear your take on that of replacing dairy with these alternative milks or then replacing all meat with plant-based sources of protein instead. Yeah. So the, the plant-based milks, I think if you have a dairy problem, if you have lactose intolerance or you find that dairy products upset your stomach in some way, then it's reasonable to look for a, a substitute, but there's nothing that makes these uh, highly processed plant-based milks uh, intrinsically more healthy than uh, dairy milk, full-fat mm -hmm. dairy milk. Um, and um, I think the, I've written about a plant-based diet. I feel like the diet that I advocate for my patients is a plant-based diet. Um, and the definitions vary quite a bit. Um, I think for many, plant-based diet is code for veganism. Yeah. Um, and with veganism, uh, you have a diet free of animal products plus a moral philosophy, which kind of uh, rejects the commodity status of animals. Mm -hmm. And I. I don't uh, advocate veganism because I think that it's very hard to sustain and it misses some key nutrients. Um, so that kind of a plant-based diet, I think is not supported by the literature and is not recommended by most organizations. One of the, the people that I've written about a lot um, is a guy named Caldwell Esselstyn who was featured in the documentary Forks Over Knives. Um, he's a surgeon who has written a book that talks about reversing heart disease with his diet. And I, the evidence for support for his diet in reversing heart disease is incredibly weak. Um, and um, it's just it's just something that doesn't pass muster in the scientific world. It would not it would not be published in a scientific journal, and it lacks all of the things that we look for in a good uh, study that proves the worth of a diet. But um, his diet calls for us to avoid uh, fats that we that are almost universally considered healthy, such as olive oil and the fats from nuts. Um, so these kind of diets, I think are really not one that patients should be, should be eating. 
even if it if it's touted as reversing heart disease, the evidence just doesn't support it. Yeah, um, I think there's all these flashy headlines that you know seem really attractive, and that seems awesome if you can just follow this guy's diet and completely reverse heart disease. But I think from what I understand, there's a lot of cherry picking that is involved in documentaries where it's kind of you choose the evidence that supports your claims and don't really present the other evidence. Is that exactly? Yeah. yeah, Which is what you avoid, I think on your blog. And we were talking off air of how it takes you hours and hours to write just one post diving through all of the evidence and putting forth the best most objective standpoint. Yeah, and I think it's it's really hard to find objective information on diet on the internet. I think the other diet that gets uh, a lot of uh, publicity because the major creator of this diet is very uh, kind of careful to defend it whenever it's criticized the dean ornish diet which is which he claims is proven to reverse heart disease again involves a very small number of patients um, that used multiple other modalities and didn't really use state-of-the-art measurement techniques to look at reversal of heart disease so even though u.s news and world report lists the Ornish diet as number one for heart healthy diets. You won't find uh, organizations like American Heart or any uh, any mainstream kind of organizations recommending this that aren't heavily influenced by vegan vegans. Mm. What do what diet do you advise? And you said plant based, but what does that mean to you? Yeah, I've kind of uh, I've kind of written kind of half tongue in cheek about my plant-based diet because I've decided that you can basically say plant-based about your diet is whatever you want to whatever diet you want to propose as long as there's a plant in it somewhere but (laughs) what I say is your primary focus in meal planning is to make sure that you are regularly consuming a large and diverse amount of healthy foods that come from plants and that is minimally processed food And I think if you do make uh, vegetables your primary focus, it's going to be a lot harder to succumb to all the cookies and the donuts and the pies and the cakes and the pretzels and chips, the french fries and the breakfast bars and the other calorie-dense but nutrient-light products that are cheap and readily available and I think lead to overeating and obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my plant-based diet, uh, healthy whole foods are still on the table, not every day necessarily, but certainly when I feel like it, I consume meat, I consume eggs and full fat dairy. Um, we consume them in moderation and we try to avoid ones that come from factory farms, but they're definitely uh, part of, I think, a good healthy diet heart healthy diet. You mentioned eggs. So I'm curious, cause I know that's a hot topic in cardiology. You've mentioned also cholesterol. So eggs and egg yolks, is it okay to be consuming dietary cholesterol? And is cholesterol still something we should be concerned about? Because some doctors I know are out there saying 
this is an obsolete measurement and it doesn't really mean anything. Um, so let's hear it from you. What's the truth here? <laughs> so it's really important to differentiate uh, two kinds of cholesterol that we're talking about here. They're two totally different concepts. Um, cholesterol in the diet is really has very little to do with cholesterol in the blood. Um, the cholesterol levels in the blood. Um, the cholesterol levels in the blood, and specifically now we know it's the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, is definitely important in developing heart disease. I think my sense of that in the last seven years since I started kind of looking at all the original data and following all the science that comes out in this area is that there is more evidence now uh, that supports the idea that the lower the LDL is, the less risk of atherosclerotic diseases like heart attack, attack and stroke. That evidence is really solid now. It wasn't as, as, as solid seven years ago when I first started looking at it, but now it's really solid. So that is definitely important. But as I said, cholesterol in the diet is totally a different concept. And that is not contributing directly to LDL levels, and it's not something that we need to be that concerned about. In fact, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans Committee that reviews what we should be eating every five years, five years or so ago, wrote that dietary cholesterol is no longer a substance of interest. Um, despite that, um, you'll still see people recommending limiting eggs to say one a day. I don't think the evidence supports that for most people. Um, I think two eggs a day, sometimes three eggs a day is fine. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't recommend it every day, but I think on average you can have 10 to 14 eggs per week and it's not gonna really affect your cholesterol. It's not gonna raise your risk of heart attack. Do you ever advise using whole eggs and then also egg whites to add to it? Or is that not something you would recommend? No, I actually consider egg whites an abomination because it just doesn't make any sense to me. Got um, it. Because uh, all of the great nutrients that come in eggs are found in the yolk and biotin and, and other things are really... Uh, a lot of nutrients that I think are important. Now, I have most recently in my dietary journey been looking at advocates of higher protein uh, as opposed to higher fat advocates with keep, while keeping the carb low in the diet. And I noticed that they're, they often talk about egg whites and they're, and they're predominantly using that to kind of pump up the uh, protein percentage in their in their diet as opposed to trying to avoid uh, mm -hmm. what's in the yolk but to me that's just processing that doesn't make any sense and there should be uh, better ways of getting the, the nutrients that you need right so on that topic of kind of these low carb advocates do you find any research to suggest that adopting a lower carb, if it's not extremely low carb, let's say, that a lower carb diet can help prevent heart disease or even reverse it? 
Uh, the evidence of reversing specifically with a low-carb diet is not there. But, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that when you consume very low-carb uh, in the order of less than 60 grams per day, and if you uh, are mod mo monitoring it with ketosis, looking at going into ketosis as a guide to consuming low-carb, that you can have significant reductions in weight and in uh, diabetes. Whenever you lose weight, you will uh, have less problems with diabetes, you will have le less problems with uh, high blood pressure and you will have less uh, bad cholesterol. So my philosophy is to work with any diet that the patient is successful at losing weight. Mm -hmm. uh, for the obese patient. And that's a lot of patients, uh, as you probably are aware. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm happy if a patient is really doing well on the keto diet, I'm happy to support that. We do want to check their cholesterol level, their LDL in particular, and their apolipoprotein B levels, which is another kind of bad cholesterol that we need to monitor. Um, because probably 20% of people who go on a keto diet significantly bump up those, those levels. Mm. And I'm not comfortable, uh, if those levels bump up to a significant amount without treating them to get them down. Right. That makes sense. I like that approach of what's sustainable for you is something that you'll support as long as all of the kind of blood work checks out. But I think that's something that's not talked about enough is if you're going to try to lose weight and then keep it off long term, the things you're going to do to lose the weight and then keep it off are kind of the same lifestyle habits. I think people go on these crash course diets and then yeah. they stop them and then go back to what they were eating before. And that's not what's going to work long term, you know, so it's really yeah. got to be the things you do today have to be the things you're willing to do forever. So it's important to figure out what those things are for each unique individual. Exactly. And I think a lot of people go on the keto diet, and they might go on the Atkins diet, um, which is a lot of fat, a lot of animal fat. And even if you like animal fat, you tend to get tired of eating that much after a while. Mm -hmm. And most people who go on that, those kinds of diets end up falling off them. They might lose 25 pounds, but they immediately, when they come off at six months later, they get, they gain that weight back and they yo-yo. So right. I really, I really don't like uh, fad diets. I don't like diets that aren't sustainable. I wrote about my sister's weight loss journey. Um, mm -hmm which I think is, it was one of my most popular dietary publications. I, she just kind of described what she's been doing over the last year and a half. It's kind of partially Weight Watchers and it involves really watching carbs, but it's a sustainable diet that seems to be finally working for her. The other diet that I think is worthy of mention um, is kind of a, a plant-based keto. Um, and in plant-based keto, instead of eating an a lot of animal fat, you are looking at uh, the fats that come from things like avocado, consuming lots of olive oil, 
um, nuts um, and uh, trying to make a large percentage of your uh, fats coming from plants. And with that, um, there's some recent evidence that that leaves your your markers or your biomarkers of adverse cholesterol, the LDL and the apolipoprotein B, leaves those in a good range on average, similar to what the, a low fat diet does, but also kind of helping you lose weight. How about a Mediterranean style of eating where you're introducing more whole grains and fish to the mix as well? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been primarily an advocate of the Mediterranean diet, um, and I, I, I still think it's the one that has the best science behind it. The Predimed study, which was done in Spain, showed that uh, those who followed the Mediterranean diet supplemented with large amounts of olive oil and with a mixture of nuts had significantly lower cardiovascular events, less stroke, less heart attack uh, over a five-year period. So that's really one of the, the strongest randomized controlled trials that has been in the nutritional space. And it's the reason that I kind of advocate the Mediterranean diet, which mm. includes fish, um, includes whole grains, um, includes wine and, hmm. and uh, Thank you know, God. <laughs> includes lots of olive oil and lots of nuts. And at one time I had, I was uh, giving out to my patients what I call Dr. P's heart nuts. Um, and I've written a lot about uh, the components of that, which are almonds, hazelnuts, and uh, cash and uh, walnuts. Oh. Um, so um, those are those I think are are great uh, snacking things in place of less healthy uh, foods. Yeah, chips, crackers, yes. <laughs> basically all the center aisles of the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Although and I guess you processed foods. Yeah, I guess nuts are in those aisles too. So I won't <laughs> I won't bash those aisles completely. <laughs> um, so you mentioned well, fish. I think they can pro they can process nuts to make them snack-like, uh, to make mm -hmm. them kind of unhealthy. Um, when you roast a nut and when you put salt on it, to me, it's a nut that you're going to consume more than you really need to. You're mm -hmm. kind of overcome your normal satiety signals and start consuming them too mu in, in too much uh, fashion. Mm -hmm. So just the raw nuts, you're less that likely to overconsume. That's what I recommend, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned fish, and I know you have a great post on fish oil. I think that's another kind of myth cir circulating around out there, that you take yeah. fish oil and you prevent cardiovascular disease. Um, yeah. So I'd love for you to kind of talk to us about that. Uh, sure. They, you know, the post links to like an hour-long talk that I gave. It's called Grand Rounds at my university. And, and basically, I, I take the um, listeners through the kind of the journey of omega-3 fatty acids, how they became perceived as the ultimate ultra-healthy fatty acid. Um, and the uh, early studies um, after INFARC, the GC study, 
showed that supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids lowered the risk of recurrent heart attack and uh, lowered overall mortality in the group that had it versus placebo. This was over 20 years ago, and it was before we had more modern treatments for cholesterol and for heart attacks. And pretty much every study since then, where they randomized patients to omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil supplements versus placebo after heart attacks uh, did not show any benefit. Hmm. Despite that, this um, a big industry emerged uh, in the nutraceutical world, a multi-billion dollar industry that makes omega-3 fatty acids that kind of grounds up, grinds up the ocean floor to get these small fish to make into to, uh, fish oil supplements. And the, um, the public has become convinced that if they take omega-3 fatty acids, it will help their cholesterol and it will reduce their risk of heart attack and stroke. And the evidence has totally uh, disappeared to support that. Hmm. Most recently, using very large doses of uh, omega-3 fatty acids containing both EPA and DHA, uh, a very good study called the STRENGTH trial was, was uh, published and presented at the American College of Cardiology meetings in March and showed absolutely no benefit of these uh, four grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids versus placebo. Um, and more recently, uh, another paper showed that it didn't matter how much they increased EPA levels in the blood or how much they increased DHA levels or the combination of them. It did not lower risks. It did not lower the risk of dying or having a heart attack. So people should stop taking over the counter omega-3 fatty acids. There is no benefit from them. And so it's just a waste of money. <laughs> it's a waste of money. It's not helping the marine ecosystem. And um, you're feeding the, you know, you're feeding money into the pocket of snake oil salesmen, essentially. So please yeah. stop. Please stop taking those. <laughs> and you uh, know, and, and I, I deep prescribe this on so many patients a day. It's, it's amazing how it's still stuck wow. in their head. Yeah. And they are shocked. They are shocked. Patients are shocked when I tell them, you do not need to take this. It's not helping you. Yeah. I mean, especially if you get the super high quality ones, they're quite pricey. <laughs> and who even knows if they're as high quality as they say they are? Yeah. Well, the, yeah, I don't, you know, with any over the counter, with any, with any supplement, you have trouble knowing exactly what you're getting. Do you recommend, I know you can't, it's like not medical advice, but um, are there any supplements that most people could benefit from like vitamin D or magnesium or a multivitamin, or are you kind of skeptical of all supplements altogether? There is not a single one that I recommend across the board. Um, and they all have an industry behind them. Um, magnesium has been touted for uh, all kinds of things and 
The only the only time I recommend magnesium, I have I write a lot about PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, which cause palpitations. There's some people that are just really troubled by them, and they find that taking of magnesium supplements help. I, you know, if you take it and it helps, fine, fine, keep on taking it. But there's no you know across the board reason that you should be taking it. Vitamin D, there have been lots of studies come out in the last five years showing that vitamin D is not helpful for cardiovascular disease, so I don't recommend that. Same thing with vitamin E. Vitamin E is not helpful and can be harmful. Same thing for vitamin C. Um, all of the kind of idea that you need to be taking antioxidants in any trial that has looked at that in a careful manner in a randomized controlled trial the antioxidants have not shown a benefit. So do not kid yourself that you are uh, fixing your risk of cardiovascular disease by taking these over-the-counter supplements. They haven't proven beneficial and you're just wasting your money. And I think too, they could give you a false sense of security. If you're thinking, oh, I'm taking these supplements, which is pretty easy to do and takes 30 seconds versus making some deeper diet and lifestyle changes and kind of assessing those and getting into some better habits. Um, so maybe they, they give you that idea that everything's going to be fine, but really it's better to take a look at diet. Exactly. Uh, or to use a drug, you know, really well-studied, uh, safe and effective drugs that we can utilize to lower your risk in the case that diet and lifestyle doesn't work. I think you asked me about supplements. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, in your email supplements for, um, for cholesterol. And one of the posts I've written about is on red yeast rice. It's a very common thing that people take thinking that it's going to lower their cholesterol. And the, mm-hmm. the interesting thing is that the original statin drug was identified in red yeast rice uh, by a a Japanese uh, chemist. And that eventually, after being studied and purified and studied in humans and shown to be safe and effective at long cholesterol was the original statin called uh, lovastatin. but what happened with red yeast rice was you had to highly process it and uh, to get a safe and effective compound out of it. But the, if you buy red yeast rice now, the FDA has kind of mandated that there not be any effective statins in it. So you're really uh, kind of playing Russian roulette in terms of what you're getting. You might be getting some statin in it. You might not be. So it makes a lot more sense if you want to take red yeast rice, why not take a uh, a chemical that's been kind of studied, purified, and shown to be safe and effective by the FDA rather than kind of gambling on something that you're buying from a a shady charlatan uh, (laughs) nutraceutical manufacturer. Yeah. So it seems that the natural treatment you would recommend is really just kind of the boring stuff of the diet and probably exercise and the interventions we kind of all know we should be doing 
and not falling victim to these predatory supplement companies? Absolutely. And, you know, I think I wrote a post about the eight lifestyle changes for reducing your risk of atrial fibrillation are very similar to the lifestyle changes that I talk about for preventing heart attack and stroke and regular exercise. I recommend 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise um, per week uh-huh. um, and sleep. Regular yeah. sleep is very important. Limiting alcohol to a moderate amount is important uh, for blood pressure and also for reducing atrial fibrillation risk. And uh, eating a healthy diet, to which we've kind of been spending a lot of time talking about. Yeah. So again, it's hard to sell. <laughs> Those things don't have as shiny of headlines as some of these other, you know, I go know. plant-based and re- reverse heart disease or take this supplement. And I go, I deal with the same stuff with my clients of it's hard to sell healthy, sustainable weight loss when you're up against all of these quote unquote overnight solutions. But I just try to drill in through all of my content. Just this is what you got to do. This is the way to go. And Mm-hmm. You're just going to end up wasting time, money, and energy on all those things and regaining the weight back eventually. Um, so, you know, might as well just start this boring stuff ASAP. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I mentioned that I, I kind of gravitated towards medicine because I wanted to find a cure for aging. Yeah. And I've written about a book uh, that I kind of like uh, called Younger Next Year. Um, because I think huh. what we should be trying to do is kind of age in a way that we remain healthy, strong, and fit. And that that book uh, uh, is by a doctor who actually died uh, at a fairly young age from prostate cancer, but it still doesn't negate uh. the, the wisdom of what he said in kind of a very simple way that you can make yourself actually physically and mentally younger uh, the next year by doing some simple things like exercising six days a week, doing uh, uh, serious aerobic exercise four days a week, doing serious strength training with weights two days a week. And I think uh, strength training, I'm I'm sure that you uh, look into that too with your clients. I think it's, it's an important part of the overall approach to uh, being overweight and, and strengthening our muscles and our bones. And also, I think it has uh, psychological and mental effects, too. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of strength training. <laughs> but also, like you said, just the, you know, just getting out for walks, getting sunshine, just whatever you can do. And I feel like with exercise, it can't be something you absolutely hate if it's going to be sustainable. So it's kind of figuring out your sweet spot. You may not love it. I know that most of the time I do strength training myself. I'm not jumping up and down excited about it, but it feels great afterwards. And you do have so much more energy and it helps with weight maintenance and weight loss. And so yeah, you got to figure out what works for you and just stick with it. I think same with diet, as you said, and just unfortunately, the things we're saying aren't that don't make the big headlines. 
It's not worthy of clickbait. Exactly. Yeah. Too boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> boring podcast here. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'd love um, the final question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Well, you know, every day I uh, talk to my patients about what they can do uh, to get their blood pressure down, to um, prevent the atrial fibrillation from coming back, um, to prevent their stents from clogging off again. And so I think the, that what they can do is, is really the health investment that's most important. These kind of uh, items that we've been talking about, making sure that they're eating uh, a healthy diet, making sure that they are getting regular cardio type exercise as well as strength training and flexibility. And uh, those, uh, that's the health investment that they should be making for their longevity, for their health span and, and for uh, quality of life as they age. Yeah, just kind of a back to basics approach. The things I guess our great grandparents would have advised us to do. It's kind of, we got to get back to that, the simple stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your knowledge so much and just for sharing everything with myself and my listeners. And where would be the best place for someone, if they're listening, to either follow you on social media or to find you online? Well, my blog is uh, www.theskepticalcardiologist.com. And I tweet at SkepCard. I think uh, it's S-K-E-P-C-A-R-D. And uh, those are, that is, uh, that is the extent of my social media. I would say that's a great idea and probably good for your overall health to keep <laughs> social media as minimal as possible. <laughs> well, exactly. great. I'll put links to your blog and your Twitter in the show notes so that people can connect with you there. And I just want to thank you again so much for being here. And I learned a ton and I know my listeners will as well. So thanks. Thanks a bunch. Okay. Thank you, Brooke. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the health investment podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.